I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. My memory is fine. I know what the hell I'm doing. I've been president. I put this country back on its feet. Hi, I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. Welcome to Cross Country Checkup, the podcast. More than one in five Canadians of working age are now 55 to 64. Our question, have you ever been judged for your age at work or have you ever judged someone for being too old or too young? I remember when I interviewed some older folks, I did have a bias. Being a 73-year-old nurse is not easy. I have found a lot of the older nurses have been kind of pushed out or eased out. I'm 34 years old and uh, I'm part of the millennial generation and it's always bothered me a little bit, uh, this common stereotype that we're lazy and entitled and, and, uh, and victims of the experiences that we've gone through. It's easy to make assumptions about people based on how they look. If it's ethnicity or gender, we know that's inappropriate, but what about assuming a coworker over 70 just isn't as mentally quick as your other colleagues, or that 28-year-old doesn't seem old enough to really be a doctor? Does age sometimes make you question the ability of a colleague to do their job? The debate in the States about whether Joe Biden is too old to be president is what got us thinking about this topic, but we're interested in your workplace and your experience. Our question, have you ever been judged for your age at work, or have you ever judged someone else for being too old or young? I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. From CBC Radio, this is Checkup, the podcast. Cross-country checkups live broadcast from February 18th, 2024. And a reminder, particularly if you're watching on CBC News Network, but also listening on CBC Radio 1, this is a program that not only is live, but you can take part in. You can have a real role in this program simply by getting in touch with us while we are on the air. Before I get to your calls, though, let me introduce someone who can talk about ageism and work more broadly. Canadian workplaces, for the most part, are now made up of four different generations. Many of us are staying in the workforce longer than maybe a generation ago. We have baby boomers, generation Xers, millennials, and Gen Z. To talk more about navigating age discrimination in the workplace, Helen Hirsch-Spence joins us now. She's the founder and CEO of Top 60 Over 60, a consultancy firm that provides training on age diversity in the workplace, and she is in Ottawa. Hi, Helen. Hi, Ian. Nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you. Yeah, nice, nice to meet you as well. Why don't you tell us uh, some of the stories that you've heard from older workers about discrimination in the workplace? Well, I've, I've heard endless stories about older workers in the workplace because we're involved in advocacy. One of the typical stories is that they don't even get in the door when it comes to hiring and recruiting. Um, and that's, that's another story perhaps altogether. But once there, they're often passed over when it comes time for uh, promotions. Uh, they are... <clears throat> not even given a chance to voice their concerns about issues because, again, there are so many assumptions that are being made about our older workers in, in the 
in the workforce, such as because they have gray hair, they'll be retiring soon, when in fact there are fewer people retiring than ever before at the age of 65. In fact, the, the, the fastest growing worker group is over the age of 75 currently. So there are assumptions that, that they can't uh, learn new technology, that their skills are outdated, uh, that they're resistant to change, and they're not given the opportunities to upskill or reskill the way younger employees are, are given the opportunity. Yeah. And, you know, as I, as I listen to those things, I think to myself, th there is some some truth in those stereotypes. But like any stereotype, the thing we need to do is judge people specifically on their interest and level of skills and how long they're going to be in the in the workplace. But I, I mean, I feel like so you mentioned some some perceived negatives about older people in the workforce. Do they ever get the sense that they actually um, get appreciated in some ways a bit more, that, that experience is something that people look to them and say, hey, you know what, you're bringing this into the workplace in a way that somebody much younger wouldn't be? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't think it's as a common because you don't hear about it all that often, but it definitely happens. And one of the, the values of bringing in older workers or retaining them, which is really critical too, is the fact that they have less ego, they're not as competitive, um, and they're willing to mentor and work well with other generations. And they have found that retention of young people increases when there are older workers around or older employees. So that's one of the many benefits of having somebody. And the other thing is that they have the ability to, uh, because of life experience, uh, they have skills and experience that really do give them a performance edge. So there is a, there are a ton of benefits of having all generations working well together. And what have you heard from, from women in particular when it comes to ageism? Well, I, I'm glad you asked that because there's so many different types of ageism and most people are totally unaware of how prevalent and insidious ageism is. Um, women in particular suffer not only from gendered ageism, but they also suffer from lookism. In other words, they have to look younger and um, dress more youthfully because we've had a, a, a focus on youth for so long in the 20th century and it's well, it's moved back into the 21st century as well. However, those things are starting to change, fortunately, and that's because of the huge demographic shift that we're undergoing now. One of the things you said before, and I think it's important to mention that ageism is defined by chronological age, but we shouldn't be defining uh, the ability to work or be a president based on chronological age, because that's just one layer of our identity. And it doesn't speak to all the other capabilities that we do have. And fortunately, some of those articles are now being published. Uh, there was something on this morning, in fact, about um, aging and, and these new realities that are fortunately coming to the fore. We're live here with Helen Hirsch-Spence. She's the founder and CEO of Top 60 Over 60, an age diversity consultancy. And our question on Cross Country Checkup today, have you ever been judged for your age at work or perhaps you've judged someone for being too old or young to do their job properly? Our number is 1-888-416-8333. Helen, uh, there are no doubt younger people listening and saying, wait a sec, you know, the ageism uh, can affect us too. I know that this is not the focus of your work, but what can you tell us about that that kind of age discrimination? 
Oh, it's definitely it, it, age. Ageism is um, it's an equity thing. Everybody can get discriminated against equally. Uh, young people are definitely discriminated against. How often um, are they told that they're too young to take a certain position? or they haven't had the experience. They're often, you know, talked down to uh, by older older adults, or they're not given the promotion that they probably deserve because of the belief that they're too young to, to uh, do something um, properly. So there's a, it's called youngism, actually. There's a name for it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to play you a clip from Bruce Mayhew. He's an HR consultant and a trainer, and he does what's called generational differences mm-hmm. training at workplaces yeah. that have employees from different generations. So let's listen to that. Boomers grew up at a time when if you weren't in the office, you could not be productive, right? Internet didn't exist. Mobile phones didn't exist. So boomers grew up in a space where if I didn't see you, you couldn't be working. Millennials, their parents planned their activities for them and they drove them to all of the different places. So they had less responsibility, if you will, but much more activity. So going to ballet class and soccer practice and all of these structured events. So they love to work together. They love to be in teams, They, for the most part. So they don't see hierarchy the same way boomers see hierarchies. You know, listen to Bruce's clip. A couple of things come to mind. The first one is not something I'm going to ask you about, but I just want to make this observation. Um, What he says makes a lot of sense. It's also a generalization, but some generalizations actually are based on facts, right? And so uh, it doesn't mean it's true of every boomer versus every millennial, but uh, but it's interesting to hear the different kind of generational experiences we have. Uh, Here's the question, though, I want to ask you based on what Bruce Mayhew said. Um, What advice do you have for managers who are trying to, to deal with workers who have different perspectives, in part because they are of different generations? Well, you mentioned that there are four generations in the workforce, and that's very common today. There are actually five. Hmm. Um, so if if I were to say one thing to employers, it would be start looking at your diversity strategies and start including age, because age is intersectional. And we know that diversity is extremely important. Well, you combine that with uh, age, with, new eth- with other ethnicities, races, religions, you're going to multiply the diversity. But it's excluded from 92% of global companies. So age inclusion, age diversity is the first thing. The second thing would be that they need to educate everyone on staff about ageism and the varieties of ageism, whether it's gendered, internalized ageism, because a lot of workers, older workers in particular, have lived uh, throughout all these negative perceptions of what it means to grow older, and they've internalized that. So it limits them. Uh, They're not as self-confident. They may be reluctant to take on something new. And the same thing applies to the generalizations about younger people. Sure, it's easy to say millennials are lazy or they're not engaged in the same way. As you, as um, I guess Bruce Mayhew just pointed out, um, they grew up at a different time when we focused a lot on our children and they're not entitled They just have different expectations. So we have to view things through different lenses and stop making assumptions based on what we believe is true. Yeah, there's so much wisdom there. And I I just want to underscore one of those points, although I agree with everything you said, and that is about diversity. Too often we attach a single characteristic to diversity, but we are all 
complicated, right? And and so I'm not just some, you know, a person of color. I'm somebody who is my age who grew up in New Brunswick and I have all these characteristics. So diversity um, has, you know, is multifaceted and age is certainly part of that. Helen, really nice speaking with you. Thank you, Ian. Helen Hurst-Spence, founder and CEO of Top 60 Over 60, an age diversity consultancy. As you've heard, we want to hear from you if you are a younger worker as well. So have you felt that you have been unfairly judged because of your young age? You can call us at 1-888-416-8333 or send us comments and stories to cbc.ca slash aircheck. I also want to look ahead just over an hour from now is our Ask Me Anything. And uh, we always look forward to having a couple of questions that are lined up ahead of time. This week, we want your questions about what's happening in Russia right now and Ukraine over the last couple of weeks. Obviously, the news about the death of Alexei Navalny uh, is what has spurred a lot of people to question where's Russia right now? How should the West React. So we have two experts coming in, and you can call us at 1 888 416 8333 if you'd like to take part in the Ask Me Anything. Even though that's over an hour away, you can call now. We'll write down your name and call you back when that portion of the show begins. But for now, our question Have you ever been judged for your age at work? Have you ever judged someone for being too old or too young? Let's go to Mississauga, Ontario. Farzine Foda has called us up. Hi, Farzine. Hi. And so you feel you've been unfairly judged because of your youth? Yes, potentially. Um, you know, age is a, it's a complicated thing in the workplace. As, um, as Helen mentioned, you can very easily be too old or too young. And I definitely recognize the challenges on both ends of that spectrum. And so, you know, with my experience, it's been really hard to really pinpoint that as just age. I think it's really a few other isms and biases that come in, but it can play out in very subtle ways, like being told you're not quite ready for that next step yet, or, you know, promotions just not being on the table despite having, you know, consecutive high performance ratings. And so you start to be, you know, be be made to feel like you're asking for something ridiculous or acting entitled. Um, And so sometimes constructive feedback can be things you, you really can't work on, like visibility perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, so it shows up in, in kind of subtle ways and usually seems to be packaged alongside a few other other biases or challenges. Yeah, and, and you know, what, what's difficult about this, and I'm sure that people who call us will will reflect on this as well, is that if you feel like you're being treated unfairly, unless it's explicit, right, unless somebody actually tells you you're just too young for this, um, then, you know, it's possible to have this kind of nagging sense of uncertainty or doubt, right? Uh, where it's kind of like, I wonder what really is going on. But but to the extent you yeah. feel age has been a negative uh, in terms of your advancement in your job, um, do you have an example or two? Yeah, I guess, you know, even more generally, just as a workforce, we tend to look at job postings and see years of experience um, as a requirement. And so I definitely believe and firmly believe that experience of quality matters a lot more than quantity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we have that quantity aspect, and I hear that, you know, in my in my travels, working with other individuals um, entering the workplace, that that years of experience ultimately skews the conversation towards age, whether it's true age or how you look, as Helen mentioned earlier. Um, so for me, I have to say, um, just like I mentioned earlier, it's often packaged with a few other things, but um, where I have kind of felt it more is, is just like I mentioned, um, you know, specific instance where 
I, you know, received the highest performance rating. I'd been with an organization for a few years and kind of felt like I was ready. I'd already made a few lateral moves. Like now I was ready to move up and that really wasn't on the table. And in fact, the conversation was like, it's really hard to vouch for you during calibration because you're not very visible. Mm -hmm. If we're speaking about an organization with too many layers, it's very hard to get that kind of visibility. Um, And so that, that kind of feedback makes it a lot harder to even act on it. um, And then, you know, ultimately to move up. Um, And and so when you are given that visibility opportunity, in fact, it was actually um, taken away. And so it just made it that much harder. And I think a challenge that is not just a function of age, but, you know, so many other factors like um, gender and ethnicity. And and Farzine, can I ask how long have you been in the workforce? Yeah, um, well over 10 years at this point, yeah. but uh, we'll say, you know, we are on the radio, so you can't see me, I'm 33 years old and mm-hmm. standing just about five feet tall, mm-hmm. um, and I have been ID'd more recently <laughs> than I would expect to be. Yeah, I mean, there'll be a situation where being ID'd uh, to make sure you're old enough to buy liquor, well, you'll actually feel flattered by that as opposed to feeling badly about it, but uh, you're years away from feeling that way. Uh, Farzine, let me just ask <laughs> you this, 10 years into being in the workforce, being 33 years old, uh, do you feel, I mean, maybe it's just your natural tendency, or maybe because of your experience, you feel an extra obligation to treat people who are in their 20s with more respect, with more dignity? Do you find yourself doing that? Oh, absolutely. Just as I mentioned earlier, the quality of experience matters. And so mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, currently work as an independent HR consultant. And so part of where I try to focus my effort as well is in that diversity, equity and inclusion, helping organizations really remove that systemic bias where they can. Um, and then on the flip side, mentoring young women that are entering the workforce. These are unfortunately some realities that we can hopefully make strides towards, but there are some some facts that we have to, you know, kind of embrace and, and try our best to move past them. Um, and, you know, the best thing that we can do when we're always told this as women is, you know, if you do good work, it will be, it will be credited. Um, and unfortunately, we don't always see that thanks to some biases that find their way in. But, you know, all we can do is, is get the help of strong mentors and other women to support us along the way. Farzine, thank you very much for calling. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'm Ian Hanamansing. This is Cross Country Checkup on CBC News Network, CBC Radio, and other CBC platforms. We are live from Vancouver. And if you would like to take part in our program, our number is 1 888 416 8333. You can also connect with us at cbc.ca slash aircheck. And it's about being judged at work unfairly because of your age, whether you are perceived as being too young or too old, or maybe you have been doing the mistake judging of others. Evelyn Dutrasak is in Sudbury. Hi, Evelyn. Hi, Ian. What's your well, story? Yeah, thank you very well, much story, for calling. Yeah. Well, my story is I'm a politician. I was a high school teacher for 33 years and I was a registrar in a university and I've been involved in politics throughout my life. Mm-hmm. I ran provincially, 85, 87, 89, 294 was a uh, councillor for Rayside Balfour in uh, in Sudbury. And then in 2006, I became the board for a uh, councillor for the city of Greater Sudbury until 2018 when I left when my husband was sick. And mm-hmm. then I ran again in 22 to be yeah. mayor of Greater Sudbury. And at that point, you've uh, disclosed your age to uh, to our producers, probably people know publicly as well. You were in your 70s, right? 
Oh yes, I'm I'm 75 right now. I was 73 yeah. when I ran. Yeah, and so oh, and I'm a woman. I'm yeah. a female, older adult. Yeah. So how 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 did those things that combination of being in your you know approaching your mid 70s as you were running, um, and and being a woman? How, how do you think? Uh, what do you think the the reaction was to those two things? Well, there was a lot of attack on the fact that I was a woman, an older woman. Mm-hmm. And I did well. I came second. I got a lot of support in the areas in Ward 3 and Ward 4 where I'm well known. Mm-hmm. Spent my life here. got 46, 40, 46% of the vote. Mm-hmm. However, it was very subtle. Very subtle from the other candidates and from the residents asking if an older woman could be mayor of Greater Sudbury. And for me, age is not a negative. It's mm-hmm. a positive non-issue. So uh, two quick questions. Um, and, and the first one is, do you think that, uh, and, and we've got a lot of calls rolling in now, so I want to move on pretty quickly. So so let me ask you this. Um, so do you think your age is actually, it makes you better now as a candidate? Oh, my age has afforded me a, a life of personal experience mm-hmm. in communication as well as engaging and empowering people. Yeah. I, I ask people to take a hard look at me. I'm an older woman. However, mm-hmm. when you, you see me down the street, you see me working, people are calling me still now mm-hmm. to get uh, expert uh, to networking. Uh, I have a lot of experience in municipal and yeah. all levels of government. I've got a good education. And then yes. I have experience with people. I really believe what's important is to get to know people, connect with them, yep. build trust. So, so the, then, the the wisdom of elders, right? And, and a lot of cultures appreciate that. And and so, but let me ask you the flip side of that: if you feel that there are uh, strengths that you bring to the table because of your age, do you feel in any ways that there are? you know, the diminution of your abilities or, or, or uh, is there anything negative about, uh, you know, running for mayor your age? Well, look at life. Life is a cycle. Mm-hmm. And at any age, I have limits and I also have uh, talents and strengths. Mm-hmm. And I can let my life be run by negative or limits. However, I acknowledge that I have limits, and I'm always, I think, as an older adult, I'm always learning. I do a lot of reading. I have two undergrad university degrees. I have a master's degree, mm-hmm. even started a doctorate degree. I'm learning every day. Yeah. And I, I think that we bring with us, we bring limits. We do. Everyone does. Mm-hmm. I've worked with high school students. I've worked with university students yeah. as the registrar at St. Paul's. We bring both. However, I think it's our attitude. Yep. Our attitude. I'm not there. Age is not an issue. It's what's in one's heart. Yes. And I, I found that running to serve and not to rule and the experience that I got, like I find that I okay. had so much experience in the municipal yep. level and that even though I have limits and negative things, yep. we, we all learn, do. We learn to change. We all yes. do. Okay, uh, let me let me of, jump in there. And I'm so, sorry to interrupt, but uh, well, how about a last uh, last sentence from you on this? Well, I, I, I think having been judged for my age has just given me strength, mm-hmm. has given me courage to recognize that I do have limits. I'm getting older. However, I want to serve people, and I want to serve with my heart. I want, and with my brains, and with everything that I am as a person. And uh, I I think that age is just a number. 
Thank you very much for calling. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ian. Our number is 1-888-416-8333. As I say, lots of calls coming in, which is fantastic. And if you're listening and you'd like to weigh in, we'd love to hear from you as well. I I think I will be kind of going through the calls fairly quickly, though, so I apologize in advance for that. Our question, have you ever been judged for your age at work or have you judged someone uh, considering them to be too old or too young? Uh, Mark Whiteman got in touch with us. He's in Calgary, and he went to cbc.ca slash aircheck. I invite you to do that as well. My company let me know that at age 65, they would no longer provide life insurance or long-term disability. Scratching the surface showed that it was a cost decision made by the benefits company. I have no desire to retire, and the nature of my job creates a real probability that I could get hurt given all the travel that's required. Companies and their benefit providers are struggling with an aging workforce and those that work beyond 65. I wonder, and I'm not going to muse about this uh, off, you know, live uh, off top of my head, but I wonder what the legality is of telling an employee who's still working at 65 that they are no longer able to get life insurance or long-term disability through their company. Joe Hunwicks via text message from Whitby, Ontario says, I'm a retired firefighter chief when I was in my early 40s and had reached 20 years of service. Having moved up the ranks, I began seeking the opportunity to move to the rank of fire chief. By then, I was very experienced in all aspects of the profession and was well-trained and educated for such a position. However, I looked much younger than my age, and that left recruiters feeling I was too young to manage a fire department. I did eventually achieve my goal and served with two different municipalities during the 12 final years of my career. Okay, our next caller is in Ottawa, Sandria Blench. Hi, Sandria. Hi, how are you? I'm doing very well. So uh, do you have an experience, do you feel, about being unfairly judged at work because of your age? I do. I feel that in the interior design industry, age definitely is an asset. I have uh, 18 staff that work under me, and they all range in age from 20 years old until 55 years old. And I can tell you that by bringing someone under the age of about 30 to any project over, you know, $50,000, it definitely is not an asset. Um, They seem to, clients want to have people that have had more experience, have a little bit of gray on their hair, know that, you know, there's someone that they can come back to if there is a problem, there is a recourse to it. So in this industry, Though I find the minds of youth phenomenal, and for myself, there is no ageism in my industry or genderism or anything like that. For clients, they do prefer more experience, even though I find the youth tends to have more interesting ideas, things that they're willing to try, new products that, you know, older people have never heard of that are Mm -hmm. using the same tiles or the same counters or the same cabinetry. Youth has more imagination, generally speaking. So I find the diversity in my field great, but ageism I do notice as a huge factor. This is fascinating, Sandri, and this is one of the things I love about the show is when somebody like you, who as the person who runs the company, um, has these insights as to how your clients uh, kind of react to the people that work for you. So um, I want to I want to go through this a little bit. Um, and and again, we have so many calls, so I'll try to make the question sure. short and answer short. Um, but 
How do you manage that then when you, A, don't want to discriminate against your employees based on age, B, realize that some of the younger designers actually have really interesting creative ideas, but C, you know that some of your clients want literally or figuratively gray hair on their designer. Yeah. How, how do you manage that? So what I do is I include them on all projects, but what I do is sometimes they're more behind the scene than in the front. So what I'll do is I'll do the intake myself. I'll go through all of the materials, all the options, and then I'll bring it by a younger generation that maybe doesn't have as much experience and see what their take on it is. So I will still include them myself, only the client will have me as the face instead so that they're a little bit more reassured, Mm -hmm. or I speak to them regarding it, saying that don't worry that they have our backing, our company, if we're hiring them, knows that they have a skill, that they are qualified, and that they have the company's backing to reinforce that they don't have anything to worry about is what I generally do. So it's about reading. Psychology is a huge factor in um, the interior design business, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. So it's really reading your clients, their needs, their desires, and making them feel as comfortable as possible in the situation where they're involving so much money on their home or commercial space. Yeah. Now, then the other thing I wanted to ask you is that uh, interior design is so subjective. What you like is, is what you like. And so if, if the designer is 45 years old and the client is 50 years old, I'm guessing, but you tell me there's, there's a higher chance that there's an overlap sort of in their aesthetic tastes. So sometimes, I don't know. There can be, be, but as you mentioned, it is really subjective. So Mm -hmm. you could have 70 year old clients that want a futuristic space or a really Mm -hmm. modern space. And then you could have young 25-year-old clients that want a classical home and they like the history and they want to really stick to that era, mid-century modern or whatnot. So as you mentioned, it's totally subjective and I feel it's very psychologically involved as far as reading your clients, knowing when you can bring someone in and knowing when, you know what, behind the scenes is a better approach to having the the staff work for you still, but not um, stress the client out. Sandria, one last question. And if you're just tuning in now, Sandria Blunch has called us from Ottawa and she runs an interior design company and mentions that sometimes clients, maybe often clients uh, tend to want older designers and sort of favor, believe that they favor the ideas of older uh, clients. Sandria, when it comes time to hire people in your firm, how do you, to what extent is age, are age and experience part of the criteria? So they are a factor, but not age, more experience. But mm-hmm. I'm also very apt to ability. So I'm willing to take somebody that is wanting to learn and wanting to grow and able to grow. And I'm very willing to teach them how that works. So I think that if you value someone that has the drive, to move forward and the ability to learn, age doesn't matter whether you're 50 coming into the industry or 20 coming into the industry. It's about drive, ability to learn, ability to grow, and that's pretty much it. That is fantastic. I'm sorry, I interrupted. Go ahead. No, and then training as well. So Mm -hmm. training your staff, whether they're older or younger, really plays a big effect. Um, on whether they're going to be successful in this industry. And you mentioned 50. Like if somebody was, let's say, 55 years old and just entering the industry, um, they would have a shot at working at your company? 
Absolutely. It's all about your ability to learn, your ability to have the skills and, you know, the desire and reading the clients, knowing the products and wanting to grow. Well, it sounds like you're doing a lot of things right there, Sandria, and we really appreciate the fact that you've uh, shared your story with us. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. This is Cross Country Checkup on CBC Radio and CBC News Network, one 416 8333 Have you been judged unfairly on the basis of your age at work, or perhaps you've judged someone considering them too young or too old to be uh, one of your colleagues, or at least a high-performing colleague. Uh, Ian Fraser is in Victoria, British Columbia. Hi, Ian. Good day to you. How's it going? Good, good. Now, I'm looking at the notes here. Uh, do you, you work in the IT industry, and are you responsible for hiring? Absolutely. Okay, so let's pick up where we just were with the last caller, Sandria, because I am really interested in hearing from somebody like yourself as well, who does hiring. So IT, like I'm picturing young people because, you know, people old like me, we can't, we can't figure out software. How do you handle that when it comes to hiring? Well, I'm a portfolio manager. So I have program managers, project managers, and then team leads. I have a range of job roles underneath me. Mm-hmm. And I will hire 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds, 60-year-olds for different reasons. Mm-hmm. In the IT industry, we're looking for solutions that work. Now, there's a lot of things that don't work in the IT industry in software development or cloud or security. So my older people with years of experience, which is not necessarily the same thing. I can have a 30-year-old with 15 years experience. I can have a 60-year-old with 15 years experience. Mm -hmm. But typically the people that have the experience might be a little older. They can tell me the ways that don't work. The younger people who are just getting into the industry, they got five years, 10 years with them. They come up with the ideas of let's try this. This is something new. Let's try these different things. And so there's a balance between new and exciting, new ideas, new ways of doing things versus, yeah, we've tried that. It doesn't work. And here's why. Mm-hmm. And so, so I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah go ahead. You work yep. with, the clients don't care who's doing the work. They just want the job done. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of purposefully, mindfully try to get a balance of uh, years of experience on, in your firm and on projects? Yes, I'm, I'm looking for a range of young people, and it doesn't matter to me, male, female, ESL, uh, EDI, uh, doesn't matter to me. If they're interested in doing the job, doesn't matter to me if they have five years experience or 10 or 20 or 30 years experience, depending on the position that they're going for and what I'm looking for, I'll hire them. Mm-hmm. So what's really interesting here, uh, besides just the insights of somebody who actually is involved in hiring and managing people, which is fantastic to, to, to hear that insight. But beyond that, you know, you're not really talking about sort of age in terms of ability. You're talking about experience, I guess. That's what it sounds like. So let me ask you the age question, because I guess, you know, the jumping off point uh, on this conversation today for a lot of us was what people are saying about President Biden in the United States, those who wonder if cognitively he's starting to decline because of of his age. Um, How do you feel, Ian? You know, you've been in the industry yourself for 47 years. and, uh, and, and, And what about, you know, as people who work for you, I don't know if you have any who are in there, 60s or 70s, but but how do you feel about the potential for cognitive decline for somebody who's still in the workplace? 
Well, that's an interesting thing. Um, in the IT industry, we really don't see, sorry, in the software development transformation transition areas of IT. Mm-hmm. You know, not hardware guys working on racks of hardware, but where there's a lot of mental work to create code, to solve a problem with software, to come up with an innovative solution. Um, cognitive decline really hasn't shown up as an issue in the world I work in. Mm-hmm. And That's... as I say, we have this balance of people that know things that do, don't work combined with people that are going, try this, try this, try this, because Again, in the software industry, in three months, certain pieces of technology will change out and new things will come in. Um, I get a big laugh when I uh, listen to HR people talking about, oh, we need a person with rich face experience 20 years. And rich face has been on the planet five years. <laughs> and we see that all the time uh, in technologies. Cybercrime, 20 years experience. Well, the cloud hasn't been around all that long. Um, Internet security has been around 50 years, um, mm-hmm. but they don't know that. They're just looking for keywords on a resume. Interesting. Yeah, well, I think one of the lessons of this program, and you've, you, you've helped us along this way, is, again, to kind of uh, assess people individually and not based on any kind of broad criterion, whether it's age exactly. or, or something else. Ian, thank you very much for calling. Uh, not a problem. Thanks for listening. Bye now. So the question on this program is uh, about whether you have felt judged for your age while at the job or judged others. Uh, What about when you're applying for that job? Let's bring in uh, Sarah Vermont into the conversation. She is a career coach, also written a book that I'm always careful about when I pronounce the name of it. Uh, Sarah, you know that I kind of find the (laughs) title fantastic, but also, you know, problematic because I might make a mistake. <laughs> Careergasm, find your way to feel good work. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Ian. Nice to talk to you again. Yeah. The last time you and I talked, you were in a car in uh, maybe Algonquin Park, uh, speaking live to us on Cross Country Checkup. And if I remember correctly, a squirrel <laughs> started to drop things on the hood of your car, your roof of your car, and you had to explain that to us. So you seem safe and sound in an actual it conventional... It was not the glamorous debut on the show that I was hoping for. It was fantastic. <laughs> and that just added a little bit of like classic Canadian... Well, what could be better on, on a show called Cross Country Checkup than somebody in... It was Algonquin Park, right? It sure was. I was yeah. on a camping trip. Yeah, so, and yeah, a camp- squirrel like, come joined on. us. How Canadian is that? So that's great. So <laughs> now you're boring. You're in a, in a house somewhere, but uh, I think the topic will be very interesting. Um, yeah. What stories are you hearing uh, from clients, or maybe tell us one or two, uh, about ageism in, in the workplace? Sure. So I mostly help people with career transition. So very often I'm helping people who are encountering ageism on the, like, trying to get into an mm-hmm. organization. So For example, um, I have a client who just mentioned to me on social media recently that she gets asked about her hair all the time. She's a woman um, in her 50s, and she has lovely gray silver hair. And she's always baffled how she gets this question. And also, you know, it's interesting, sometimes ageism and sexism can intersect because men typically don't get this question about gray mm-hmm. hair, but sometimes she gets it when she's she's in meetings or, you know, in, in work situations. So that's an example of some subtle ageism. Um, less subtle ageism is this thing that people encounter when they're sort of weeded out of the job pool and they can never really tell. 
mm-hmm. if it was ageism or not, right? Like sometimes it's a very gray line and you're not certain, but you just have a feeling like maybe you were taken out of the running because of your age. Like when I'm working with people in their 50s and 60s, they like have pretty legitimate concerns that people are maybe not taking them seriously or afraid that they're not open to learning or aren't technically savvy enough and those sort of things. And so when people are applying for jobs, um, they really have to sort of be be brave about it because uh, many of them do encounter ageism mm-hmm. when they're applying for jobs. Yeah, no question. I, you know, and I, not not to draw the equivalent, but I will say that, and this is not the case for me, but uh, for a lot of men, balding is something that people will right. comment on, right, and talk about, Good and point. that's usually associated with with age as well. And I know people who just have to kind of smile and you know accept the joke that they hear over and over and and over again. Um, what advice do you have uh, for older workers who are applying for a job and, and want to present themselves kind of the, in the best way possible? Well, there's a couple of things that you can do. Um, if you are concerned that ageism is going to be an issue, one thing some of my clients are doing right now is removing their year of education from their resume and job applications and also like maybe removing the first couple of jobs on their resume um, that aren't that aren't particularly relevant anymore anyway because they're jobs that they had decades ago and it sort of softens the automatic bias that someone might have when they're just taking a first pass over a resume. However, um, there are some job applications that require you to fill out like an internal form like online where you have to put in certain fields like your year of education. So that doesn't always work. Mm -hmm. But what can be really helpful is let's say you want to get over that sort of technology bias that people tend to have around uh, people in their 50s and 60s. Make sure on your resume that you're actually highlighting and like in a really strong way exactly what kind of technology experience you have, the specific kinds of software you've worked with and for how long. Um, If you're in an interview scenario and you're concerned about this, make sure you talk about an example of when you had to learn a new piece of technology for work, just so that you go ahead and sort of address the elephant in the room if you're concerned that that's going to be an issue. We're here live with Sarah Vermont, a career coach and author of Careergasm, Find Your Way to Feel Good Work. Our question today, have you ever been judged for your age at work in an inappropriate or negative way? Or perhaps you've judged someone considering them too old or too young to be an effective colleague. Our number is 1-888-416-8333. You can also go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. Sarah, one of the difficult things I think, and you've touched on it already in in one of your answers, and we've heard about it from at least one of our callers, which is when somebody is pretty sure they're being treated unfairly because of their age and probably other factors as well that are combined with that, but they're not absolutely sure. Now, I know your expertise is people who are, you know, looking for for new jobs, but for somebody who's in a workplace and has that kind of nagging concern about, you know, why am I not getting that promotion? What, What kind of hard advice would you give them? Not hard advice, but what advice would you give them in terms of uh, trying to address that? Yeah, so I have had clients who've been overlooked for promotions and they have this exact same question. And so one thing you can do 
is make sure you're seeking feedback. Let's say you've been passed over for promotion, not even once, but twice, and you have this nagging feeling that age has something to do with it. And maybe there's some bias there. Seeking feedback about um, why you maybe weren't the successful candidate can be good. Now, sometimes it can be helpful to make sure you choose the right language when you're asking for feedback. So for example, instead of just saying, well, why didn't I get the job? Which by the way, is a legitimate question, but it kind of puts sometimes hiring managers back on edge. They're afraid to give you direct feedback. You can ask the question, what would make me a more desirable candidate next time? And then they have to talk about the specific things that they're looking to fill the position. Mm -hmm. And then you can sort of do the math to see, oh, was this an age issue? Or is this maybe an experience or performance issue? It'll help you tease things out a little bit. Yeah, that that is such great advice. So good that, you know, this is a program where people are driving or maybe making jam as they're listening. Can you repeat that? What The way they should ask that question for feedback? Yeah. Instead of asking, why didn't I get the job? Go ahead and ask, what would make me a more desirable candidate in the future? Mm-hmm. And that sort of forces the um, the hiring manager or the HR team to speak specifically about the things that they're looking for in that job. And then you can sort of self-assess and see if there was something that you're missing. Great advice, Sarah. Don't go too far away. I know you're going to stick with us for the next half hour. I want to go to some calls, but I'll be coming back to you uh, periodically. So thank you very much okay. for uh, agreeing to do that. Sarah Vermont is a career coach and author of Career Gas. Find your way to feel good work. A reminder, our number is 1-888-416-8333 or text us at 226-758-8924. Francis Nelson is in Ajax, Ontario. Hi, Francis. Hi, how are you doing there? I'm doing very well. So I see at, uh, well, you know what? You tell us uh, about uh, how you feel age has uh, been a factor in the way people perceive you at work or maybe not a factor. Well, I would start by saying age was not a fact. Mm-hmm. I retired at 65. I'm 74 now. And uh, I couldn't take it staying at home lying on a couch. Mm-hmm. I'm a retired builder, licensed in the drywall industry, University and College of Ontario. And uh, I applied for a building superintendent job. Now, in the old days, I know the building superintendent had to shovel snow, <laughs> do all the cleaning. I didn't know it was still the same. Mm-hmm. However, I applied. I got a call within a day. And after three phone call interviews, I was called downtown Toronto to meet the head tycoons mm-hmm. of the company. Yeah. And I was interviewed there, and uh, one question they asked me, and the way I answered it, sealed my faith in getting the job. Oh, man, I can't wait to hear that. Go ahead, yes. You say, okay, the job is yours. Mm -hmm. I went to look at the place in Brampton, and I say, wow, it was a 19-story building, 305 units. There were two buildings in the area. Unfortunately, I had to manage both for quite a while until they... I trained someone. Every time I got an assistant, I showed them the ropes and took them around and showed them everything. And I started observing them to see what they know. Mm-hmm. Then I would say, and the job was strictly maintenance, repair and replacement of uh, face base and kitchen sink, the trap underneath if it's bad, mm-hmm. you know, toilet bowls and things like that. 
And they were honest. They said, I don't know much, but I have a little experience. And I managed to train one and show him all the ropes. Mm-hmm. And then I said to the manager, if you're looking for someone for the other building, this is the guy you must hire. And they said, okay, we take your word for it. They had him and he did not let me down. Nice. He did very well. Now, I worked in that industry for six years. Until, as uh, I've, I guess you heard the word about hostile takeover. Mm-hmm. A stroke did a hostile takeover <laughs> of my of me. Yeah. And uh, I'm 74 now, and I'm still called to train young people in the drywall and framing industry. Well, that's terrific. And during my stroke, I created a brush. I could scrub my back, mm-hmm. put the liquid soap in there, and put a socks on it when I'm finished to cream my back, because the trade, the, the straight one was not doing good. Yeah. Enough. Well, you sound like an innovative guy. You also sound like somebody who is uh, very easy to talk to. So I'm happy to hear that not only uh, your years, uh, but also your stroke did not uh, was not an obstacle in terms of getting hired, uh, Francis. I really appreciate you calling us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Let's go from Ajax to Toronto now. Anders Ross has given us a call. Hi, Anders. Yes, hi, Ian. I uh, just thought that uh, Gen X uh, should be represented on your fine show today. Yes, absolutely. And, and I'm glad to see that Ian uh, represented the disability community. Mm-hmm. Uh, I myself also have a disability. I have epilepsy. Mm-hmm. And um, I've found that being young and having a disability, and the other thing that keeps coming up is due to um, having multiple jobs at any given time, I have gaps on my resume and mm-hmm. my work history. So the way I get around that is I just say I've held a position for X amount of months and then I say this is what I did uh, when I arrived and this is what I left when I left the position. Sort of like a a deliverable-based resume. Mm -hmm. That usually fixes the so-called missing middle. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, the one thing that I, I, I keep getting over and over and over again is why are you applying for this job or, or why, why now? And my, my comeback to that interview is the interview question is why not? I said, I've seen your organization. I've seen your operation. You're missing something clearly, or you wouldn't be hiring for this position at this time. And why do they ask you that job, Anders? When they ask you, why do you want this job? What do you, it's because of your youth, you think they're asking that? It's because uh, I I know I don't sound like I'm 48, Mm -hmm. but they look at my resume and they say, oh, you've done so many things and you're so qualified and you've you've done this and that and this Mm -hmm. and that. But it's because of other factors that they don't know about at the time like my disability and being a primary caregiver to two elderly parents with medical mm-hmm. disorders that I was never able to keep a single job long term. All right. And that's, that's never, um, what's it called? Given any credit or yeah. Uh, benefit. Yeah. Well, you know what? Thank you very much for calling. And, all, you know, your, your call points out a lot of things, including something we touched on before, right? The diversity is 
uh, about many things. It can be about age. It can be about mm-hmm. what you describe as disability. And, uh, you know, people just need to take other people um, based on their their particular, you know, what they bring to the table, not what, uh, you know, numbers say, like age and experience. So thank you very much for calling. Uh, let me take a look at some of the reaction uh, that we're getting uh, from Social media and the internet, Robin Howard has emailed us. He's in Ottawa. I'm a 74-year-old retired teacher, although I enjoy being in the company of young people. I'm guilty of assuming some are incompetent based on their age. Okay, well, Robin, you are nothing if not honest. Paisley Brad via Aircheck from Montreal says... Subsidized youth employment programs that have age limits, often under 30. I don't understand why this isn't considered age-based discrimination in hiring. I and many folks I know, elder millennials, have run into this barrier. For many of us, it's about breaking out of a minimum wage trap and into a more stable industry or completing a degree diploma for a career change. And Arthur Jones via email from Midland, Ontario says, I was pushed out of my job with the Federal Crown Corporation on my 60th birthday, possibly to help balance the manager's budget. As a union member, I was entitled to seven weeks of holidays compared to three for a new employee, had over 260 sick days to burn if I got sick, and had seniority that allowed me to pick choice holidays and assignments at the expense of junior employees. Fortunately, it worked out well for me with a company pension and not so well for my manager. All right. Uh, You know what? I'm going to go to Sarah Vermont just for about 30 seconds, a career coach who we were talking to earlier. And Sarah, I'm going to give you the unfair assignment of uh, reacting to what you've heard, but we only have about 30 seconds for that right now before I come back to you. Yeah, sure. Um, What this last person said about getting forced out of their organization, a lot of people feel like this. In fact, just a couple of days ago, I was speaking to someone who had this experience like in more subtle ways. So again, it can be overt or it can be subtle. If someone in your organization is repeatedly asking you when you are going to retire, that can get quite grating and can build a lot of pressure after a while. All and right, so, let, me, let me jump in. Speaking of grading, I'm going to interrupt you right now, and, but I'll, <laughs> I'm going to come back to you in a sec, but I'll say goodbye to our viewers on CBC News Network. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive. Like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Hour 2 of Cross Country Checkup live on CBC Radio. We have roughly 30 minutes left on our main topic. Then we'll begin our Ask Me Anything segment. We have two experts to answer your questions about what's going on in Russia right now. The death of Alexei Navalny, a prominent political opponent of President Vladimir Putin, has many wondering what the impact is going to be within Russia and how the West should react. There's also the war in Ukraine, which began two years ago this month. You can actually start calling now with your AMA questions. We're uh, at one 416 You can text us, too. The number is 226-758-8924. I'm Ian Hanna-Mansing, and we are live from CBC's Studio 10 
in Vancouver. And let's go back to Sarah Vermont, a career coach and author of Careergasm, Find Your Way to Feel Good Work. That really wasn't fair of me to ask you to just comment randomly on something at 30 <laughs> seconds. So you have as much time as you want, but why don't you uh, pick up uh, where you left off when we say goodbye to our TV audience? Sure. So, you know, if anyone listening is in that position where they have something going on that's, you know, maybe not yet overt, but they're feeling like pressure to retire, for example, I'll stick with that example. Um, There's a few different ways that you can deal with it. The easiest way to deal with it or the lowest um, pressure way to deal with it sometimes is to just have a fairly frank conversation with the person who's doing that. Now, that depends on the relationship. So let's say this is your manager. If you have a decent relationship with your manager, you might just say to them, like, listen, I don't know if you're joking or not, but it's it's hard for me when you keep asking me about when I'm going to retire and it feels like a pressure. Not everyone can do that because they maybe don't have a great relationship with a manager. What you can do if you feel like you have to maybe go over someone's head is just start documenting what's going on. So for example, if you're able to go to HR and say, listen, over the past two months, my manager has asked me about retirement 18 times, and you can document when that happened. It's better to go and try to get support when you have some documented evidence versus just giving sort of anecdotal stories. So that's something that people can do if they feel they need to get some support from HR. We hear lots of statistics, Sarah, about people who are, that the average age in the workplace is rising, that there are more and more people in their 60s and even 70s in the workplace. Um, In terms of your sort of core task in dealing with people who are looking at at changing jobs, first of all, are you seeing people in their 60s and 70s who are looking at changing jobs? And and secondly, that feels to me like a huge challenge. How, How do they deal with that? It sure is. They certainly come into the job search process with a lot more trepidation. Um, And very often people, and even in their late 50s and into their 60s, when they're weighing the decision about making a change, they're very often asking themselves the question, even if they're in a, a job or industry that they don't love, they're like, is it better for me to just hang in there, even though this job I don't like, and in some cases it's making me sick, it's really bad for me, or do I run the risk of moving in a new direction knowing that I may potentially run into issues with ageism? And so for the folks in their 60s who I'm working with, um, sometimes they're applying for different industries. And again, they're doing those things I said about really demonstrating their value in their job application documents. But actually some people in their 60s that I work with are starting their own businesses or working as consultants or taking on something freelance where they can leverage all of the experience they have into a particular direction without having to battle the hoop jumping that you have to do when you're trying to apply for um, employment by someone else. Yeah, really uh, interesting insight, Sarah. You've agreed to stay with us till about quarter after the hour. So I will come back to you sometimes with uh, no warning and just ask you to say something interesting. And so far you've done that over and over again. So thank you very much, Sarah Vermont, a career coach. Uh, And uh, as you heard, she will be uh, back on the program shortly. Let's go back to the phones right now, though. Steve Anderson is uh, on one of the Gulf Islands here in British Columbia. Hi, Steve. How are you doing, Ian? Good. Which island are you on? Maine. You're welcome to come over for a coffee anytime. Just follow Yeah, me. yeah, a beautiful part of the country. No question about that. Um, yeah. So what's your story about uh, about age and the workplace? 
Well, I, I retired after teaching um, high school for 30 years. And mm-hmm. so, I, you know, I considered myself somebody who was building emerging young adults for all that time. Um, but I was recently called back, asked if I would come back for, because of the shortage of um, educators with my qualifications. And so I have gone back after three years of retirement full time at the high school level. Uh, and what I was saying that I think is of importance is that over 30 years, I noticed um, a, a an ever-growing gap in the things that I needed to teach that were family-based that kids would have learned in a whole or consistent family. So, you know, as families sort of were are melting down or just, you know, whatever it is, they're drifting apart, the piece that grandparents would normally play in family dynamics is not there. I, I mean, those conversations with youth on a regular basis, um, which, which is a really interesting dynamic when you're when you're doing things that really should be happening within the family. Mm-hmm. So that that was a big thing, and I noticed it even more now, back after even just three years. So um, just to let know, you know, Steve, your your phone line is is not quite cutting out, but almost. So I may have to cut okay. this short, but, but, but I do want to ask you this. I'm fascinated by, well, everything you've said, but one thing in, in particular, if I, if I heard correctly, you are 66 now, you had retired and were out of the workforce for, I think you said three years before you came back. And so I'm, I'm really curious about how, how did that feel going back into the classroom after that gap at that age? Um, did you feel like you were, it, it, it took a while to get back to your stride or, or, or how did it go? For, for me, not an issue. I, I love that age bracket, which is why I do not teach middle school. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it, it kind of went really, really well. However, there is, there is again, a progressive change in the attitude of kids towards old people, which I, I don't like to consider myself, but mm-hmm. like, you know, it is what it is. Um, and so it, it, it's really interesting when they look at your gray hair and, and there's a little bit of judgment going on um, because in many cases, I'm the only older person that's actually having a conversation with them about real things. Mm-hmm. And I find that to be very, very interesting. So for the people, whether they're your students in school or, or somebody in an office who looks at a gray-haired 66-year-old and sees them as, as an old person, as like this thing, like I can't even believe that they're working with me, uh, what, what message do you have for them? Well, I, um, I find what, what is interesting to, is uh, I explain to them that, that I am no smarter than them, nor have I ever been. What I do have is water under the bridge or years of walking the planet. And that puts me ahead in certain categories. It gives me a deeper perspective of more things than they have at this point in their lives. Most of them will get this far, I hope. But, you know, so I have something valid to tell them. And at the same time, I don't know much, uh, or excuse me, they're way smarter in all kinds of categories than I am, just because they have different experiences. So, you know, I try to swing them around to, you know, gray hair equals time on planet and experiences, and so there's just there's just more intel in my head than they've had an opportunity to gain yet. Well said, Steve. Thank you very much for calling. Hey, pleasure, Ian. Sure, appreciate your perspective over the years. Thanks so much. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. Uh, have you ever been judged 
unfairly based on your age at work, or perhaps you've been doing the judging, uh, considering somebody too old or too young. We still have about 20 minutes left on this topic before we switch to our AMA, one 416 8333 or you can go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. And speaking of the Ask Me Anything, we have two experts on Russia who can talk about the impact of the death of Navalny on what may happen within Russia and also how the West should react to how Russia is acting. And uh, the war, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia uh, was two years ago this month. And so we have... uh, Uh, You may have questions about that. So the same numbers work for the AMA as well. And you can call early and uh, we'll take down your number and call you back uh, so you can get on the air. 1-888-416-8333. Let's go to St. Johnny Brunswick. Kim Cookson is calling Cross Country Checkup. Hi, Kim. Hi. Hi. Uh, How do you feel about uh, the way older people are treated uh, in the workplace? Well... Uh, as your former, the former teacher just spoke and the career coach, many layers. I am, uh, I am a mature adult over 60. I work a profession as an art therapist. I have been doing it for 20 years. And the reason I called you is because I've seen and lived the difference of how young people treat mature people. Versus how I was raised, and uh, the former teacher had, uh, you know, alluded to that. Mm-hmm. And then also in my practice, my clients come to me and say, "Hey, I feel so out of sync. I'm raring to go. I really want to do things." Yet society and the world around me, you know, Mom, why are you doing this? Dad, why are you doing that? You know, so they feel out of sync with what's how the culture is treating them. So it's you know, we're all kind of stuck in the middle. I live it too. I mean, I have children. And they say, Mom, you shouldn't be doing this. I'm like, why? I, I can ride my bike. I'll be fine. But yet, at the same time, you know, uh, they don't see me as a, a young person, even though I, you know, I tried to raise them to think that, you know, age is just a number. You've got to live your life, mm-hmm. but also in my practice. So it's a real quagmire. And then when you just position this against sort of psychotherapy, uh, you know, Eric Erickson's Psychosocial Stages of Development, that's sort of out of whack, too, because that theory is not in sync culturally what we're supposed to be. Like, for example, mature adults, you know, we're at the integrity versus despair, virtuous wisdom, knowledge, like your former, the former teacher said. Mm-hmm. But young people aren't looking at us with wisdom and knowledge. They think, oh, we're just old. What do we yeah. know? Um, yeah, no, it's all very interesting. And, and I, I have a, as always happens at this point in the program, a lot of callers I want to get to before we switch to yeah. the AMAs. But, but let me ask you one more thing. Um, yeah. This is your opportunity uh, in, in a, you know, a few paragraphs to tell our audience what they, how they maybe should rethink how they view older workers. What would you say? It's a pluralistic society. We're all human. And we have to look at the strengths, not the age. If you're competent, if you're caring, if you're kind, you can do the job. Skip looking at the gray hair and maybe a few wrinkles. That's not important. It's who you are as a human being and feeling. That's what's important. Perfectly said, Kim. Thank you very much for calling. Oh, thank you. It's an honor. Love your show. Take care. Oh, I appreciate that. Our number is 1-888-416-8333 or cbc.ca slash aircheck. Joe Gerba is in Edmonton. Hi, Joe. Uh, Hello. How are you doing? Good, good. What, 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 yeah, what line of work are you in, Joe? 
Uh, I'm a welder. I do uh, service work on heavy haul trailers. Yeah, so that sounds physically demanding. How how does age factor into it? Well, I'm 55, and uh, it is uh, it's kind of hard. But you know, I have my days. Right now, I feel like I'm pretty young. Um, basically, uh, I know that I'm older. I can show a lot of the younger uh, fellas uh, some stuff that's going to save them a bunch of time. Mm-hmm. I have respect. Uh, I have respect for the people that I work with. It's uh, really all good. And I think that the previous caller, Kim, pretty much nailed it on the head. Like, you got to have a certain amount of humanity when you're going to work with people, and you will get the kind of respect that uh, you need as long as you're competent, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know how, you know, if you if you physically look like you're much older than your co-workers, but do you feel, whether it's from your co-workers or managers or anybody else, do you feel treated differently because of your age, that you're in your mid-50s? Uh, well, if there's anything heavy to lift, uh, there's only about four people in the shop that can do it, and I'm usually called on as one of them, so I really, like, I can run... Like hell, like I, I'm like in really good shape, but <laughs> yeah. I know that I'm old. I know that I'm older, and and it's when somebody takes a picture of me at like a Christmas uh, party or something like that, and right. they see the picture, I'm like, oh my god, I look old, <laughs> right? But it sucks. But it is what it is, right? Yeah, yeah. And and so do you? So so tell me another because welding is not something I know about. Um, but you were saying with experience, there, there are things you know about, uh, like how to get certain jobs done more quickly than maybe a young, inexperienced person. Uh, you know what their level of knowledge it. is. Is that correct? As a, yeah, as a quick example, when you weld two pieces of steel together, mm-hmm. it's going to pull. And that pull is going to shift either to the right or the left. And if you're smart, uh, you uh, equalize your welding on one side or the other. And then you don't have to sit there with a tiger torch or a rosebud, which is a, like a hot flame, to try to bend it back straight. And you can save two, three hours on the job if you know what you're doing. And I'm more than happy to show all my younger coworkers everything that I know. Hmm, that, that is really interesting. Um, have you thought about how much longer you're going to keep doing this job? Uh, my dad worked till 73, and uh, he was riding his bike, trike, going to get groceries, got ran over by a car, Ooh. broke his knee. Ooh. Two years later, broke his other knee, and it, after the first knee heal, he worked. But then after the second knee, knee he had to shut it down. He's 86 uh, thereabouts right now. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, I think I'm going to go into my 70s. I think I have to, really. Like, it's pretty tough to get by these days, right? It's, Like, at any rate, I'm not bitching or nothing like that. It's just like, um, I think that I have to work. I don't think that I have much option. Well, I, 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 that part sounds not optimal that you, you know, feel you have to, uh, but I love the fact that you feel you can and that you have, you bring so much to the job, Joe. Thank you very much for calling. Thank you very much. All right. Our next caller is Donna Kent in Powell River. Hi, Donna. Hi. And how do you feel about this issue about age in the workplace? Um, you know, I honestly hadn't thought too much about it until a few years ago. Um, I'm 55 and I had been working in the pharmacy industry for about 12 years. I was a pharmacy assistant and just really feeling like I needed a change. Mm-hmm. So I, um, I answered a ad for a medical office assistant. Mm-hmm. And went for the interview, got the job, and many months later, when I felt comfortable with the office manager, I asked her, like, well, what was it about me, like, 
why did you hire me over the other people? And she said, well, actually, age was one of the big factors. And it just sort of caught me off guard. I was like, my age. Yeah, yeah I mean, like, the, the, op- the opposite of what you might think. So it was actually an advantage in, in the boss's eyes. And, and why? What is it about age that they felt it made you the best candidate? Well, they said actually that the younger women that they'd hired before, like they'd always need to take days off for, you know, being home with sick kids or driving kids to school and things like that. And so I guess they found that the older employees were a little bit more reliable. Mm. I mean, boy, I, I, I'm not sure how to respond to that. I'm happy for you that you got the job. On the other hand, I feel like in the workplace, we need to make sure that we're accommodating young mothers as well. And they, they bring, and, yeah. and fathers too, but it tends to be mothers who do so much of that work in terms of uh, dealing with sick kids and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And, um, and so y- y- I think you've identified your age. I think you've said you're in your fifties now, right? Yeah. I'm 55. Just 55. 55. Yeah. And so, okay. Your age helped you get the job uh, in terms of in the workplace. I mean, 55 is not that old, but do you find that people treat you differently at all in the workplace because of your age? No, I don't find that at all. Mm-hmm. No. All right, Donna, thank you very much for calling. Okay, thank you. Our next caller is in Ottawa, Patricia Paralaker. Hi, Patricia. Hello, how are you? Good. Uh, what's your story about uh, age and the workplace? Well, I'm going to tell that story, but I'd also like to comment on some of the things that the last uh, guest uh, spoke about. But first of all, I I run a volunteer organization. Everybody's Mm -hmm. a volunteer. Mm -hmm. I'm part-time, and I'm the only paid employee, and I heavily rely on my volunteers. Mm -hmm. And I find that my elderly uh, volunteers are absolutely valuable. And I... You know, we often dismiss people who take an extra three seconds to answer a question because, oh, they're not on it, they've got dementia or whatever. You know, we write, we write people off who are a bit slower. Mm-hmm. I just take a deep breath and I always get a better answer. And my those members uh, that are older are so valuable to me. And they have every kind of experience, including tech experience. And in fact, I lost one of my members who was my tech expert and he was an elderly man. And I, I grieve his loss, but I also grieve his expertise. Mm. Now, may I speak to the issue about not wanting to hire young mothers? You may. Thank you. Um, so I ran an, another organization where I had uh, t- two employees who were mums with young kids. Mm-hmm. And if the kids got sick, I would say, well, or, or, you know, the nanny got sick or something, I'd say, bring the kids in. Those, those employees were absolutely valuable. And this is going to sound a bit sort of biased on the other side, but I found that young mums worked harder than everyone else because they were afraid to lose their jobs because they were mothers. Yeah. So accommodation was very important uh, to those employees. And I found that what accommodation I could give brought <clears throat> harder effort and uh, greater loyalty. I don't think I ever heard the word accommodation in relation to dealing with people in the workplace, you know, 25 years ago. And, and we hear it a lot now. And it's really important. And the two examples you, you give, Patricia, are, are so pertinent, right? That, that I mean, 
you know, young mothers obviously need to be able to, to, to work or at least have the opportunity to work if they want it. And, and they, you know, their needs need to be accommodated when they have sick kids, but also, uh, older people, like you make a really good point that if you have somebody who's older in the workplace and they're taking like two seconds, three seconds before answering a question could seem impossibly long until you realize it's actually not. And, uh, and so your experience, Patricia, is, is not theoretical, it's actual, right? That you've, you've, you have volunteers, as you say, who are, who are older, um, and it works very well for your organization. It does. Yeah. And accommodation is, uh, there's a lot of research about what it looks like and how it works, but mm-hmm. young white males also need to be accommodated. Health, times, you know, and when you have a fully accommodated so-called workplace, uh, you actually can get the best out of people because they're they will be offering you the best time mm-hmm. of their workday. Yeah, uh, Patricia, thank you very much for calling in. I You're appreciate welcome. your insights. Uh, we were going to go back to a of caller. Course. Yeah, um, I'm going to go back to uh, Sarah and uh, Vermont, and uh, she's a career counselor and uh, coach, I guess, and can uh, talk to us for a few minutes before we let her go. Um, and, uh, and Sarah, I don't have a specific question for you. I guess I would say again, but this time there's not a time limit. You have lots of time. Uh, maybe you can reflect on some of the things we've heard in the last 20 minutes or so. Sure. I really like that we're talking about accommodation and there's so many different ways to accommodate people of all ages, actually. So it's really cool that your callers are talking not just about ageism for one particular age group, because it does show up in different ways for different individuals. Um, So often when we're thinking about ageism in the workplace, we're asking the question, like, is this happening to me? So for example, if you're an older individual in your 50s, 60s, 70s, you might be thinking mostly about ageism as it pertains to you. Or if you're a young person, you might be wondering, well, is this happening because of my age? Another thing that we think about less that I think is a really interesting question to ask yourself is how accommodating am I of other people who are a different age than me? Like how, if let's say I'm a young person, how accommodating am I of the el- the older people who I work with? And if I'm in my 60s and 70s, oh, how accommodating am I of people who are maybe just coming in their 20s? Do I have assumptions about people in that age group? Am I judging them for something that's maybe a bit different than me? So I think there's an interesting opportunity for us to sort of grow and stretch um, just in understanding people of different ages when we take that other person's perspective as well, even just as a colleague. Yeah, no, it's so much insight there. I was just thinking in conversations I have with with my friends and some of the people in the newsroom here, I, I never hear people divided on the basis of race or gender um, or religion. Uh, I often hear people <laughs> divided on the basis of age, right? And that, yeah. and so when they talk about those people, um, it's about people who are generationally different. So that that is a really uh, a really good point. You know, an interesting thing happened when our producer interviewed you before we did this show, and at one point, uh, the the producer as they should, ask all kinds of questions. One was about, you know, how you felt different generations interact in the workplace. And you 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 stepped back from that question because you said, like, you, you know, the whole point of this and the whole point of your approach is not to make broad assumptions about people yeah. based on their generations. But at the same time, are there some generalities that fit in your experience? And if you, if you feel that they're not, that's fine. But I wonder if there are. 
Um, one complaint that I get from from individuals who, let's say, are maybe in their 50s and 60s in the workplace is they're very frustrated by um, the general perspective that perhaps younger people are not as devoted, not as loyal in organizations, um, and that they're job hopping, for example. And so it's interesting. So there's two biases there, right? There's one bias that this group is wrong for doing this. And then there's the bias that like, oh, well, like, not all people in their 50s and 60s think about this. Mm -hmm. um, but I was talking about this with someone the other day. And I I said to this person, I said, um, a lot of younger people are jobbing, job hopping more because it's actually easier to climb the salary ladder that way. And with the cost of living going up, if a young person wants the opportunity to maybe have a house and a family one day, it's often the only way that they can start climbing the salary ladder is to mm -hmm. move external outside of the organization. So there are always reasons why certain individuals of generations maybe do things a little bit differently mm -hmm. than perhaps your own generation. And it's really important to keep that in mind. Yeah. Uh, so much uh, wisdom in what you've said. And I really appreciate that you've uh, been part of the program today, Sarah. Thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks. Sarah Vermont, a career coach and author of Careergasm, Find Your Way to Feel Good Work. A reminder, our Ask Me Anything is going to begin in uh, less than five minutes. We have two experts in to answer your questions about Russia, particularly in the wake of the death of Alexei Navalny and also um, the coming up to the two-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. What do those issues mean for the West? What do those issues mean for what's happening inside Russia and Ukraine? Uh, our number is one 416 You can also go to cbc.ca slash aircheck if you would like to ask a question on our Ask Me Anything. But before we go there, we have one last caller on our main topic of the day about ageism at work. Uh, Tanvi Kunlawal is in Parksville, British Columbia. Hi, Tanvi. Yeah, hi. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for, for calling. What's your experience when it comes to age in the workplace? Well... I am a 30-year-old who looks like a 19-year-old, and hmm. I get reminded of that by every single person I meet. So it, it can get challenging, not only in your personal life, but in your professional life. Yeah, I bet, I bet it can. And, and so what is your professional life? What do you do? I'm an architect by training, a so designer. Yeah, all right. So, and then in what way does your youthful look um, in what way, yeah, does it, does, does it affect what you do? Well, for one, so definitely we should not be judging a book by its cover, but the reality is we are humans and we judge before we even know we judge. So when someone perceives you to be younger than who you are, their automatic assumption is, oh yeah, they probably don't know enough or they probably um, don't have an idea of the topic that we are discussing. On the contrary, when I do start talking, then people are like, oh, you are actually are oh, you, you sound older than you seem. And then my <laughs> response would be, ah, I am older than I look. <laughs> <laughs> and so does that change your approach when you're dealing with either coworkers or clients? Like, do you try to lead with let me start by kind of making sure they know what my expertise is or or how, has it changed your approach at all? It has changed over the years for sure because I've looked 19 since I was 19. <laughs> um, so, 
So when I was around 25, it was definitely more, I need to prove that I am older. I need to prove this. I need to prove that. Uh, as you turn as you turn into your decade year, there's just so much, so many things that you're answering for yourself, let alone for other people, that you kind of stop answering for other people and mm-hmm. just do what you need to do. And uh, sooner or later, people realize that either they are wrong or they misinterpreted or they just don't, don't accept that they're wrong. And in that case, uh, that's fine because there's a whole room of people who will know your worth when you do start talking or start showing your expertise. Yeah. I mean, it is uh, the cliche, but it is so true. And you mentioned not to judge a book by its cover. And that certainly is not just your story, but the story we've heard from so many people today. Thank you very much for calling, Tanvi. Thank you for taking my call. It's time for Ask Me Anything with an expert panel on Russia, Ukraine, and the reaction to Alexei Navalny's death. Alexei Navalny has been an extraordinary fighter for uh, human rights, uh, for democracy, and someone who is standing up for the Russian people. Make no mistake, Putin is responsible for Navalny's death. We will continue to stand with Ukraine for Ukraine's security and for ours. Ukraine is still waiting for $60 billion in funding from the United States to help it in its fight against Russia. On Friday, news broke that Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny died in prison. The exact cause of death, still a source of contention. Navalny's spokesperson questioned the official explanation given by Russia's federal penitentiary service and has demanded Navalny's body be released to his family. But no matter the cause of death, U.S. President Joe Biden said he has no doubt that Russian President Vladimir Putin is to blame. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau called Putin a monster in response to the news, the Kremlin rejecting those accusations. All of this is happening as we close in on the two-year anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. There is a lot to unpack here, so we're joined by two experts to help answer your questions about Russia, the war in Ukraine, and the death of Alexei Navalny. Maria Popova is an associate professor of political science at McGill University who specializes in Russia and Ukraine. And Andrew Rasoulis is a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and a former official with the Department of National Defense. Both are here live to take your calls and answer questions. You can ask them anything on this topic. Our numbers are one 888 You can text a question to 226 758 8924. That text number once again, 226-758-8924. Maria, Andrew, thank you very much for joining us. Very welcome. Good afternoon. Maria, let's start with you. Navalny has been a, a major political opponent of Vladimir Putin for years now. At least that's the perception in the West. He was in jail serving charges of, of political extremism that many saw as politically motivated. Uh, tell us, first of all, how his death has been reported by the Russian media in the last couple of days. That's a very good question, Ian. And the Russian media has reported it very, very differently uh, from how we are talking about it. And they reported it as an example of Western influence waning in Russia. They've emphasized uh, that this 
shows that Russia is on the right track and victory will be Russia's. So um, the Kremlin and unfortunately a sizable proportion of the Russian population we're seeing Navalny as an agent of Western influence uh, rather than um, as a local hero. And how are they describing the death itself? Are they saying that it's accidental or the cause unknown or do they even address that? Not a lot of details on that. Uh, I mean, there's no, um, there's no report yet. Uh, the body hasn't been released uh, to the family. Uh, Russia is not known for transparency. And especially in such a, a highly um, regime-relevant um, event, they're not going to be uh, transparent about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andrew, uh, we're going to toggle among a few different uh, topics here that are all related to Russia. Ukraine is hoping the U.S. Congress will approve a $60 billion military aid package. Uh, As Ukraine waits for those funds to come through, uh, how well-equipped is Ukraine right now to continue fighting? Not very well. They're um, they're running out of ammunition. Uh, This is one of their biggest shortfalls. Uh, The loss of the town of Advika over the last 24 hours uh, was a result not just because Ukrainians were lacking in ammunition and resources, but the Russians were bringing to bear uh, an overwhelming and asymmetrical power, including air power this time. So uh, essentially, the Ukrainians uh, could not be able to withstand, A, the casualties they were taking in terms of the people, and certainly could not match. Almost at a 10 to 1 ratio is where Russian artillery uh, was being applied to Ukraine in terms of the counter-battery fire. So, no, the Ukrainians are in a withdrawal uh, there. They're overall, it's a 1,000-kilometer front. Ukraine has adopted a strategic defense, and Russia is now uh, doing a, an offensive um, attacks across basically up and down the 1,000-kilometer front. Advika was the most noticeable one. But there are a number of other battles that are continuing and now will continue because the Russians, after taking this town of Advika, are now poising themselves after a refresh to go further west there's another town, but they're essentially going to try and drive to the uh, outer limits of the Donetsk Oblast. In fact, they want to take all four oblasts that they have annexed uh, with the Duma uh, law last year. We are live with Andrew Rasoulis, a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and political science professor Maria Popova. And we're going to go to the phone lines uh, in just a few minutes to take your calls. It's our Ask Me Anything About Russia, Ukraine and the Death of Alexei Navalny. Our number 1-888-416-8333 and our text number is 226-758-8924. Maria, when Navalny was arrested back in in 2021, uh, there were protests in Russia uh, how does that compare to to the memorials and rallies that that we're seeing this weekend in Russia? Well, um, there's much, there's definitely less activity right now. Uh, one of the main reasons for that is that a lot of 
Alexei Navalny's followers have actually left Russia in the last two years, um, very discouraged by the direction in which Russia is going. Um, so most of the people who were showing up to his rallies before are probably not there in Russia anymore. So, of course, there's uh, more devoted uh, followers left. But the thing to remember really is that uh, we don't know how, what a percentage of the population that is. Yeah. Um, and, and Andrew, again, as we uh, look at all topics uh, connected to Russia, uh, there were reports from Washington this week that, that Russia may be developing a space-based nuclear device. U.S. officials say there's no immediate threat, but uh, how concerned should we be about the potential? Well, the Russians are essentially developing their, what they call their superpower weapons. As a nuclear superpower, uh, they're looking at uh, space-based systems. Now, satellite killing, this is about sat killing satellites and blinding the opponents like the United States specifically, uh, their ability to do anything from GPS to actually fighting wars. So by now this rumor and, and this, this leak, if you will, from the Americans that there, this could be a nuclear-capable killer satellite. And that would be banned by the 1967 treaty, banning any kind of nuclear weapons in outer space. Having said that, what we can suppose from this development, and it's still a development, not a deployment, is that the Russians are, sh are trying to show to the West, to the United States in particular, that Russia is a superpower. And so if the war in Ukraine goes badly, and it's not going badly for them right this minute, but it could turn, they're showing... If they ever, if the Ukrainians ever get close to the 91 borders, which the Russians have said would be an existential threat to Russia, they would escalate. And this would be one of many different options, strategic options, that the Russians would have to escalate. But again, it's a capability in development. But it's part of an arsenal. The Russians are showing that they're, they're a superpower and they are showing they don't intend to be defeated. Yeah, more uh, troubling reminders of what life was like up until 1989, right? And uh, yeah, who knows what is uh, is going to happen next. Uh, let's take some calls now. Our panelists, Maria Popova and Andrew Rasoulis, uh, are here with us to answer your questions that are related to Russia. one 416 We're live on Cross Country Checkup on CBC Radio. Greg Chose is in Camrose, Alberta. Hi, Greg. Hi, Ian. Thank you for welcoming on your program. Yeah, thank you for uh, for being on the program. I see you were in Ukraine in February of 2021. Uh, what's your question for our panelists? Yeah, so first of all, I'm going back to Dnipro. That's the city I was in. Mm -hmm. They'll know where it is mm -hmm. on April the 2nd so of this year. So my question for the uh, two people is, is there a person an agency, a nation, a collection of nations that can offer viable uh, plan for peace? Or is it, you know, more intense fighting and years down the road? Because that will not bode well for the nation of Ukraine and especially my friends and family in Dnipro. That's yeah. the question. I appreciate the question, Greg. And before I put it to our panelists, um, May I ask, why are you going to Ukraine right now? Well, I am a senior citizen. I'm almost 70. I'm a parish priest, and I go both for just caring for people in the Lutheran community, 
and also to teach English as a second language to those Ukrainian people who want to improve their English language. And I go for 90 days, so I'll be there from April the 2nd to the end of June. All right. Well, that's all uh, very interesting. I, I won't always, I think, go to both panelists to answer uh, questions, but on this one, I think I will. And Maria, I'll start with you. I guess Greg's question is, is there either a country, an entity, somebody who can bring peace in Ukraine or will it take war to, to, to resolve this? Unfortunately, there is no agency that has or country that has the power to compel Russia to drop its goal. And Russia's goal is not peace, but taking over all of Ukraine. As, um, as Putin has emphasized many times, uh, he sees the goal for Russia not simply taking these territories that they now control, but the so-called denazification of Ukraine, which really is a, a shorthand for taking control of Ukraine's central government. And since the Ukrainians are not willing to live under Russian occupation, if uh, Putin succeeds in somehow establishing control over the central Ukrainian government, this will not really be peace, it will be occupation. Andrew, um, I have a question for you that's in a text message, but uh, do you want to add to Maria's answer? I'll be short to say that there have been a number of attempts. The Turks tried, the Chinese have offered a plan, the, 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 uh, the Ukrainians have their own plan. Uh, the point is that, that neither side, there's no... Um, meeting of a middle ground. Um, Russian objectives and Ukrainian objectives are completely mutually exclusive. The Ukraine wants to uh, take the, back the 1991 borders. For that, Russia is completely unacceptable. Russia wants basically a neutral Ukraine, a buffer zone Ukraine, non-NATO and so on. And they want to occupy certain parts of Eastern Ukraine. So there's no deal to be made. It will be settled, unfortunately, only by force of arms. That is the voice of Andrew Rasoulis. And before that, Maria Popova. They are live here on CBC Radio. We are doing our Ask Me Anything on topics related to Russia, Alexei Navalny's death, uh, the second anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine, which is later this month, and uh, and also uh, talk about uh, nuclear space capability that the Russians are trying to develop. Uh, they are here to answer your questions at one 416 8333 or at cbc.ca slash or text message, which is what Joseph Bardsley did. And I'll put this one to, to Andrew. How do experts uh, see Russia's nuclear posture towards NATO and the West as having evolved over the past two years, should we be more or less concerned that when than when Russia's invasion began? Andrew? Yeah, well, we've certainly gone closer to uh, the, the antagonism between the East and West has, has ramped up remarkably because the Russians now consider that they are in a sort of a technical war with NATO with Ukraine as a proxy. So it's not a direct war between NATO and Ukraine. If it were, then the whole nuclear dimension comes really into the into the forefront. But in anticipation of a potential escalation to that level, the Russians have been doing uh, whatever they can to actually ramp up not only their conventional force capability, which they've done uh, actually a great deal, but also they're fine-tuning their nuclear arsenal. 
because you've got to be because if it escalates to a on to NATO uh, Russia con, uh, war, then the nuclear component is foremost. Now we're not near that, but the Russians you can't wait until that moment. And so in anticipation of what I think will be actually more of a Cold War redux, Cold War II, Cold War II, the Russians are preparing themselves uh, for that because a nuclear deterrent capability is quintessential to maintaining that deterrence posture vis-a-vis NATO and Russia. Yeah, quintessential and also terrifying for those of us who remember the 80s and before. Maria, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I I would say actually that the nuclear threat has significantly declined over the last two years. Why? Because in the beginning, Putin came out with some serious nuclear saber rattling, uh, threatening consequences if uh, the West helped Ukraine at all. And over the course of the last two years, we've seen him rationally Uh, react to defeat on the battlefield. We've seen him withdraw from territories that that Russia lost to Ukrainian uh, counteroffensive. We've seen Russian troops withdraw from uh, Kherson, which they claimed is already Russian territory, and we saw no nuclear escalation. And recently, he has stopped threatening very often because after all these red lines have been crossed and he hasn't reacted, the nuclear threats are ringing more and more hollow. So I think actually we're now in a position where we are slightly more confident that he is a rational actor and he will not escalate uh, to nuclear confrontation. It's a real privilege here to have two experts whose uh, opinions will uh, sometimes be exactly aligned, uh, sometimes overlap, and sometimes be a little bit different, as we would expect from experts. And so a privilege to have them and a privilege, I hope you feel, for you to call in or text your questions to them in our Ask Me Anything. That was Maria Popova, an associate professor of political science at McGill University, who specializes in Russia and Ukraine. And just before her, you heard Andrew Rasoulis, a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, and he was a former official with the Department of National Defense. Let's go to Graham Branswell, who's in Langley, British Columbia. Hi, Graham. Hi. What's your question? Uh, my question is, what would uh, Ukraine reoccupation or of areas of uh, Donetsk, Luhansk, and Crimea mean for people who have adjusted to Russian life there, who have accepted Russian occupation and may have been in local positions of government and such, what does that mean for them if uh, Ukraine is able to uh, take back those lands? All right. That's uh, an interesting question. And I'm just going to arbitrarily start with Andrew on that. Do you have a view? Yeah, well, we've had examples of that uh, because in 19, uh, in 2022, uh, in February, the Russians, when they when the war started, they took large swaths of Ukraine. And then the latter part of 2022, the Ukrainians beat back the Russians, like in Hershon and Kharkiv, for example. The whole city of Kharkiv had been taken over by the Russians and the Ukrainians came back. Now, what we did see, of course, and the result of that is some, some of the people in, in uh, those Ukrainian cities had accommodated themselves with the Russians. So uh, the Ukrainians instituted, you know, the due process of looking for traitors and um, they rounded up people and arrested people for treason. So that would be happening. I mean, it would be reestablishment of Ukrainian authority, including judicial uh, and looking for collaborators. That's what happens. And that's what happened before. That's what would happen again. 
It may be a necessary process, Andrew, but it sounds like it must, it could be an ugly process. Do you have a sense of, of how things went? Uh, from what we can tell, it was actually done in a rather um, reasonably humane manner. Uh, mm -hmm. There's no, no great outrages. Uh, it was done systematically. Uh, it was in the public eye. Uh, so unlike in, in other wars, perhaps, where collaborators were given very bad treatment, uh, this time I think it was a bit more under under the microscope. So the, I don't have any stories of, uh, of any great uh, untoward repressions. And Maria, would you like to weigh in on this uh, question? Yeah, in fact, um, if you remember the scenes from Kherson, there were uh, people on the streets hugging and greeting the Ukrainian army. And and so uh, it's not uh, the, the collaborator... Um, Cases are few and 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 far uh, in between, and as Andrew pointed out, following due process. So um, I don't actually expect major uh, collaboration uh, pro uh, processes in Donetsk and Crimea. What I mostly expect is that the people who collaborated uh, would leave with the Russians, as happened as it actually happened in um, in Kherson. Basically, those people who really helped uh, Russia establish occupation authorities, they withdrew with the Russians when the Russians left. So the population uh, that is there just uh, continues to live uh, normally. Mm -hmm. We have about uh, six more minutes in our live Ask Me Anything on Russia, and uh, our number is one 888-416-8333. That's the number that Don Morin called. He's in Thunder Bay. Hi, Don. Hello. Uh, what's your question for our experts? Well, I can't imagine living in Russia, but uh, I remember back in the 60s and 70s, it wasn't such a good place to live when uh, I think Brezhnev was the president at that time. Correct mm -hmm. me if I'm wrong, but um, I'm just wondering if your guests could uh, give me an idea what it is like for citizens living in Russia today compared to citizens living in the USSR way back then. Oh, that's an interesting question. Maria, do you know, uh, is that a, a comparison that, that you know about? Sorry, I did not hear anything from, there was no audio. From okay, me for all right. Question. So as I, as I understand the question, Maria, uh, our caller, Don, in Thunder Bay, is wondering about how the standard of living in Russia today compares to the standard of living in the Soviet Union in the 70s, for example. We know, we're led to believe, I think it's pretty clear that it's true, that the standard of living was pretty bleak. In, in Soviet Russia in the 1970s. Uh, how does that compare to what Russia is like now? Yeah, that's a very good question, actually. It's, um, it's very different in the sense that there is now vast inequality in Russia. So uh, there's a swath of the population, mostly in the big cities of Moscow and St. Petersburg, uh, who live uh, much better now than they lived in the 70s. But on the other hand, there is a very large part of the population in uh, the smaller cities outside of these two big cities. There's a lot of Russia, right? And, um, and the standard of living there is quite a bit lower. There is a significant proportion of, uh, of the Russian population outside the cities that do not have uh, indoor plumbing. So it, 
it, it actually does not compare favorably uh, to uh, the 1970s. And and the the sanctions that have been imposed on Russia, Maria, particularly since the invasion of Ukraine, do we have a sense of what impact those have had? Um, they've had an impact insofar as Russian exports are declining in many different areas. They're selling their oil uh, at lower prices because they cannot sell it anymore to Europe. But uh, these are not uh, effects... Uh, that are going to fundamentally uh, sort of change the standard of living necessarily for people. Russia has um, has basically changed their economy to a war footing. Their central bank is doing uh, a competent uh, job at that. So, um, so we cannot expect the sanctions to stop the war. Mm -hmm. Maria, thank you very much. Uh, Let's go to this uh, text question from Aurora Hamilton, who is in Calgary. Given Trump's recent comments uh, about Putin invading NATO countries, can your guests comment on the relationship between Donald Trump and Putin pre-post-Russian invasion of Ukraine? And uh, Andrew, why don't you take that question? Well, yeah, Putin, uh, the relationship is erratic. I mean, I think the Russians have repeated many times, and I'm not sure Putin has said it himself personally, but it's certainly Russian spokespeople have said it, that uh, they regarded uh, Trump as being an erratic uh, uh, partner uh, or, or alternate. Uh, and and in fact, I think it is Putin, in fact, who a few days ago uh, said that he would prefer to deal with Biden, uh, who felt that Biden was a bit more even keel. So again, it's the unpredictability of Trump uh, is also a concern to the Russians. I want to ask a question to each of you in in our remaining time. We probably have a a couple of minutes left uh, about the death of Navalny. He certainly has a profile in the West, the documentary uh, directed by a Canadian, won an Oscar last year, for example. Uh, He has gotten a fair amount of uh, favorable news coverage over the year. But I'm curious about what his profile has been within Russia and 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 you know, the impact you think his death would have. And and Maria, why don't I begin by asking you that? Yeah, his, it's, it's a really good and very important question. Uh, basically, we know from, uh, from a lot of different uh, sources, polls, etc., that there are about 20% of the Russian population that is anti-war. And, and so uh, among these 20%, uh, really Navalny was um, a hero, their last hope uh, for a different Russia for the fall of the Putin regime. The vast majority, however, of the Russian population is either apathetic uh, towards uh, Navalny and uh, towards the war or supportive of Putin and um, would say things, their position really could be uh, summarized as saying, well, Navalny knew what he was getting into um, by challenging Putin and uh, this is what he got. So, So really resignation, apathy, or outright hostility towards him as a supposedly a, a, an agent of the West. Yeah, it's so interesting and so important for us to keep in mind. Andrew, what would you like to add? Well, I would simply add that I think he'll go down as one of these um, Russian, uh, a tragic figure in the in the history of, uh, of Russian political actors. Uh, he was an outlier, uh, an important outlier. 
but he really never was in a, as, as, as Maria has said, he's at 20%. He was never in a position where he's going to overthrow Putin or, or do a regime change. So he was, um, he's one of these tragic figures. Uh, Russian history is full of people who uh, take on the autocracy, whether it's the Tsars or, or the current uh, Putin government, uh, who basically are unsuccessful and are heroes to some people, but they're, again, tragic heroes. And we have one minute left. I've been trying to keep it even, but this is going to be uneven. I'm going to give Maria one more chance to, to comment here. And I guess in our remaining maybe 45 seconds, Maria, last word to you about what you're looking for next, given where we are at this moment uh, with Russia. What I'm looking for is to see whether uh, the West will look at Navalny's death as a turning point, as a reminder that uh, the Putin regime is highly repressive and not prone to compromise. Uh, so the only way to challenge it is uh, by helping Ukraine as much as possible uh, on the battlefield. Let's see if that message really, uh, at that conclusion, is really taken. I say this often and I mean it, that uh, we're so lucky to have experts of your caliber, both of you, uh, to give us a half an hour on a Sunday afternoon here on Cross Country Checkup. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Maria Popova, an associate professor of political science at McGill University who specializes in Russia and Ukraine. And Andrew Rasoulis is a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and a former official with the Department of National Defense. And that's it for Check Up the Podcast this week. You've been listening to Cross Country Checkup's live broadcast on CBC Radio from February the 18th, 2024. If you'd like to share comments or appear on a future show, you can go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. Thanks to everyone who helped this week. Our phone screeners are Drew Stewart, Shaima Shoek, and Alexa DeFrancesco. Our TV team is Spencer Halliday, Brendan Sylvia, Jevin Paul, and Richard Grundy. Technical production and editing from Will Yarn, Matthias Wilson. Cross Country Checkup was produced this week by Ruksara Lee, Abby Plenner, and Rachel DeGasparis. Digital producer is Sinisha Yolich. The senior producer of the program is Steve Howard. I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. The next edition of Checkup the Podcast will be posted after the live show next Sunday. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.